Hello, and welcome to Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Yonkes-Bouchard welcomes Rory Poole to the show. Rory is Director of Alternatives at Fidelity Investments Canada. He gives a review of what alternative investments are and how to incorporate them into a portfolio. Other topics include various types of strategies, their availability through different vehicles, as well as future trends to keep an eye on. This podcast was recorded on July 14th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, a.k.a. EJB. And joining me today for this, this great episode that we're going to be doing in our live uh, studio, if you will, in, in Toronto is our colleague and recurring guest, uh, Rory Poole. Rory, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Etienne. Yeah, no, this is going to be a, a really fun episode. Uh, we're going to dive into the world of alternatives once again with Rory, who is our, our resident director of alternatives here at Fidelity. Uh, before we go ahead and do that, just a quick recap of our previous episodes, previous episode, I should say, uh, in which we had the opportunity to sit down with Dorcas Phillips, so a colleague of ours from Fidelity International uh, as a director of ETFs there and just really got uh, some cool perspectives on the industry overseas, uh, trends that are happening over there, who's buying ETFs, and just uh, a bunch of great insights from somebody that's been in the, in the industry for, for a long time. So anybody interested in checking that out and kind of getting that overseas perspectives. Uh, it is available on your favorite podcast app or on fidelity.ca. So feel free to, to go back and listen to that. But without further ado, uh, let's let's kick it off, Rory. Uh, we're here for a max of 30 minutes, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, but just for our audience, I think for the sake of getting into the subject, maybe taking the time to just explain what alternative investments are to you, kind of what's the uh, you know, I guess what's the the ten thousand foot view on alternative investing? Yeah, sure, Dan. It's a good place to start, um, and I'm glad you uh, led with a bit of a precursor to you because I think that that's important. Like, I really wish there was like a universal definition of what an alternative is or what alternatives are comprised of. Um, but at least from my perspective, I don't necessarily believe that's the case. Like, especially as we'll we'll talk about over the last five to 10 years um, in the in the eyes of retail investors, like we've seen a lot of innovation that's happened from a product perspective that have been labeled as alternatives and whether they are or they're not in some ways are kind of in the eyes of the beholder. My definition of what an alternative is, is pretty broad. I would really say like any investment that is not or where the value is not solely driven by the stock and bond market going up in particular. Okay. 
Um, there can be a number of different drivers behind return generation for those investments over time, but it can incorporate like a number of different types of strategies, um, assets. Uh, they can be tangible. They could be intangible. I think when many, many people think of alternatives within finance, like they think of a financial instrument to which they're investing through and that may invest in whether it's a physical asset like a building or a bridge um, or whether it's a financial asset like uh, a loan that's being provided in a private setting or whether it's funding that's being provided to a private company. Um, but the way to which they access it is through that fund. But I think a lot of investors out there um, who don't pay a lot of attention to this stuff probably will may not realize that they actually own a lot of alternative investments or assets without even knowing it, you know? Like I think of like, if you're someone that has like a desire to purchase running shoes, you know, like somebody that has a nice pair of Jordans where the, that have appreciated over time yeah. because of the fact that these are the limited edition Michael Jordan dunks or whatever, like I kind of consider that an alternative investment. Same thing obviously goes with your, if you're a homeowner or in my case, a mortgage owner, like you're, you're technically, <laughs> you technically um, have an allocation, if you will, to that of alternative investments. And so I, I think that, I'll, and I'll finish at this, is that within our world, and in particular, like institutional investing, people think of kind of the big five alternative asset classes. So if you think of private equity, private debt, or private credit, kind of synonymous with one and one another, um, real estate, infrastructure, and hedge funds. Those are the, those are kind of the big five that people initially think of. So how broad that goes, and depending on who you talk to, uh, may consider uh, one more of an alternative than the other, uh, but definitely it's, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty big world. That's a pretty broad definition, but it's good. It's a yeah. great it's a great place to start because I think that allows us now to we'll we'll definitely dig deeper into some of those topics. But I think what was interesting that you said is that it's 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 pretty much anything that's if you will differentiated uh, or or the return generation isn't linked or correlated to typical bond and equity markets, which is the majority of you know investment products, for example, that we have. Uh, at Fidelity, but which is uh, also continually changing as, as we adapt over time. And the example of Jordans, it could be antiquities, could be all, you know, all these different yeah, you stuff got, that appreciates in value. You're, you're someone that owns a Rolex. Like there's a great example, right? It's, I mean, not too many people do, but there's a scarcity factor associated with that. And that's an asset that appreciates over time. So like, do I consider that an alternative? Like for sure. And how, so, I mean, obviously these physical things is a bit different, right? Like, I mean, you necessarily, like you said, Rolex, not everybody can buy a Rolex, of but, course. but every, everybody can invest in alternative strategies, right? So now uh, you've seen a lot of, cause you mentioned hedge fund strategies being as part of that mix, which is maybe a bit, could be a bit more difficult to access for, for some investors. But now with the liquid space or liquid alternatives, it seems like we're really busting down the doors for, for, for all investors, right? So like everybody has access to these types of investments. Yeah, definitely. Like I think that there's a, a huge desire um, within the, the fund manufacturing world, if you will, to provide a lot more scalability to a number of different types of investors that are out there um, through a number of different forms. Now, when I say hedge funds, I, I refer much more so to 
the strategy itself as opposed to that of the vehicle to which it's offered through. Fair. You could offer you could offer a hedge fund strategy in a private market vehicle, mm-hmm. um, which may be able to do different things than that of a public market vehicle. Um, but when I say hedge funds, just for those that are listening or hedge fund strategies, I'm referring to um, what the, the asset manager or the portfolio manager is doing within the portfolio. And then depending on how you choose to access that, uh, might dictate the terms that come along with it. Okay, that's fair. Where should we go next? Let's have out. So this is one I think I, I was kind of scratching my head about and I was like, Rory's seen some stuff. He's been at Fidelity for a while. Uh, how have you seen investors and advisors incorporate and, and kind of adopt these strategies and maybe how that's changed over the past, say, you know, five to 10 years? And because uh, I think it's fairly clear that this is a growth area of the investment world. Um, but are there notable changes that you've seen already, you know, in, in, in this kind of uh, growth phase of sure. the alternative space? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, and if you're referring specifically, let's let's refer specifically to what you mentioned. So like talking a little bit about the advisor community or the, or the full service advice community in Canada, there's definitely trends that I've seen as it relates to that. Um, I think part of that's been really driven by the environment that we've been in. So, I mean, for for those folks that are do keep a bit of a pulse on markets, um, no secret that we were in a pretty lengthy secular bull market period with the yeah, some ups and downs here and there, but relatively speaking, not necessarily a ton of volatility. So those kind of like beta sensitive assets, whether it be uh, on the equity side uh, or those beta sensitive assets that benefited from a falling rate environment over like a three decade period on a secular basis within fixed income. Um, at least relatively speaking, there wasn't necessarily as big of a need for diversification within people's portfolios, despite the fact that it's taught to everyone within uh, business school or any program that you take. Um, but as well as the fact that you didn't necessarily have, again, some of the the opportunities to invest in some of these asset classes um, or some of these types of strategies. Um, and I think that to your point, like that, that's changed a little bit with the proliferation of these liquid alternative funds. Um, now we can get into this if you want, but like, I mean, liquid alternatives, there there's limitations within the, the broader sphere of alternatives in terms of like what you can and can't do or what would actually make sense for an, an investor product uh, and in particular a prospectus-based product within those areas. Um, but I think that with the changing of uh, like forward-looking uh, assumptions or how people are looking to modify portfolios, um, like definitely there has been a changing of the guard and an uptick in demand as it relates to alternative products, regardless of whether those are private market vehicles or public market vehicles. Um, And I think that with this kind of like ongoing push from a product uh, innovation standpoint, as well as the fact that um, really, I think both audiences, institutional as well as retail demand has certainly picked up considerably. The combination of those those two forces uh, will contribute to like, I think some continued allocation uh, across a number of different types of alternatives, if you will. But more products, more interest, more demand from 
yeah, all kinds of spheres good, of investors, right? It's so. a good it's a good combination to have, most certainly. More I mean, choice, but there's right? a yeah, and there's a lot of catch up to do, you know. Like I think that for years, as we were kind of discussing, there hasn't been much attention or um at least from the retail side in particular. Institutional is a little bit of a different um little bit of a different beast. But it, from the retail side, most certainly, like I think that people were very comfortable. And and now it's not to say that any of that stuff is dead or not to be. Well, if it wasn't broken, you know, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe something's yeah, broke over the past not, couple of it's years. Not, you know? <laughs> uh, it's not the type of thing that's going to all be left in the dust for the purposes of investors solely going into alternatives. That's not the message that I want to give off here. But people realize that they have more things that they can access. And the fact that, hey, you know what, moving forward, maybe the next 20 years doesn't look like the last 20 years. Great. No, I think that's that's a great point. And um you know, the, what's interesting is when we're talking about more products, more demand, like you've, I think what we're, where we've seen a bunch of new products and obviously we're biased on, on the podcast. We are an ETF podcast. Uh, most of the new innovation has come on the fund side, right? Through yeah. the mutual fund trust and not so much maybe on the ETF vehicle. Is there a reason you think for that? Or is it, I mean, it, maybe it, asking the question answers it in the sense that an ETF having uh you know the, the whole creation redemption process sure. could create issues when you have potentially some underlying assets that are maybe a bit less liquid is that the, would that be the number one driver of one or the other or is there another reason that maybe for an asset manager even say like fidelity to go the fund route versus etf route yeah sure i i think that um well f i'll start with the point that you mentioned explicitly so like the on the liquidity side of things and and that's really I mean, that can be said about um, an ETF or a mutual fund vehicle for the purposes of like creating a liquid alternative. Obviously, you're not you can't create a liquid alternative with illiquid assets. There's a maximum based on like prospectus based products that you can have in an illiquid either strategy or uh, asset. And that's usually 10 percent of net asset value. So. That's very difficult for um, mutual fund vehicles and especially ETF vehicles with what you mentioned from a creation redemption standpoint um, to engage in. Yeah. The other part of it, I think, has to just do with and I'm not a I'm not a market maker. Um, I've certainly chatted with many over the years, um, but I think that their job when it comes to um, when it comes to hedging or when it comes to um, being able to uh, kind of manage their inventory and exposures yeah. when you start including some of these more complex structures um, like short selling, like additional derivatives usage, like leverage. Not to say that they can't do it, but it comes more challenging. Like private assets? Um, yeah, and well, no. private assets, not as much just because that those are many in many cases illiquid, but, but definitely when it comes to all these additions, if you will, that have come into ETFs and mutual funds under a liquid alternative or an alternative mutual fund framework um, that makes it tricky. And and then to be fair to them too, like from the fund manufacturer's standpoint, like when it comes to short selling, especially if it's like individual companies, there's a lot more sensitivities around that and a lot more reluctancy from those manufacturers to provide that information um, on the basis that the market makers need it in order to make markets in those securities. So 
yeah, I think it the liquidity aspect is definitely a factor, but it also on the liquid alternative side. So when I talk about that, like more of the hedge fund strategy that I was alluding to at the start, um, there's other factors at play. That's a good answer. And I think, and, 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 you know, we'll see there, there, it has been some growth, I think on the ETF space a little bit, but it's just been a bit, uh, more muted relative to, uh, to funds, but I think it'll get better with time is what I would say. I think it has been like uh, when I, when I first, when we first went down this path in the beginning of 2019, when the ribbon was kind of cut on liquid alts, the responses at that time and and when you looked at the AUM skew kind of six months eight months out of the gate it was like very much like near all the assets being mutual funds there are manufacturers out there these days and fund companies that like do have ETF versions of their products for whatever particular reason and it seems to be working all right like I mean you you might know better than I but Mm -hmm. at, at, at the start it was like a lot of concerns about being able to keep spreads tight based on all those variables that I mentioned. I think that that's getting better. And I think that as time progresses, and especially based on this kind of like huge uptick on a relative basis that we've seen in ETFs maybe versus that of mutual funds, I wouldn't be surprised if after time, like there is a relatively equal dispersion, if you will, of ETF and mutual fund assets within liquid alts. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the market making community for sure. I mean, get you, it takes time to get comfortable with these new types yeah. of, of, of structures and, and things like that. And uh, also it becomes at one point where there's a secondary market, right? Where there's, you know, liquidity being made through trading from one, one market participant to the other, which is, uh, which is obviously help spreads generally speaking in the ETF industry. Now that it's so big, even here in Canada, uh, we mentioned it last uh, in last episode, 365 billion in Canada. I mean, like, pretty big industry now. I mean, it's not, fun. it's not the fun industry, but we're slowly getting there. Um, Most definitely. Yeah. So no, that that's good. Uh, I've, I've a few other questions uh, that I have here. Um, one of them is, is around real estate and infrastructure, which you mentioned as being kind of those core pillar uh, sure. segments of the alt space. Um, would you consider a REIT in itself an alternative or is that just a stock? <laughs> uh, it's a good question and a, and a place that I understand many people can get confused. And maybe, again, I'll answer this from my and just, perspective. Just for our audience, for those maybe don't know, a REIT is a real estate investment trust, which is basically uh, a, a company that invests in, in various assets. In Forms real of real estate, yeah. yes. So I'll say that I think it depends on the vehicles to which you're accessing the REIT. Because there can be publicly traded REITs mm-hmm. and there can be private REITs. There can be open-ended REITs. There can be closed-ended REITs. There's a lot of variability. But to answer your question more directly, if it is a a REIT that's listed on a public stock exchange, do I consider that to be an alternative? No, not necessarily. It's got beta, right? Yeah, because because you're exposed to really, I think, two elements, right? You're exposed to the, uh, the kind of fundamental of real estate, most certainly, because as you said, the company's going out and acquiring real estate assets. But you're also exposed, like any other publicly traded stock, to the day-to-day cash flows associated with buying and selling that security. And so there's times when REITs trade at significant premiums or discounts relative to their net asset value that may not be justified, but that's what you're accepting is that you're accepting market risk when you're going into that. Whereas with the private side, if you're investing in a private REIT, um, more often than not, and there's a lot of other nuances that we can talk about in relation to this, but um, you're really gaining more of a, a pure exposure to the asset class 
itself and the components of return or detraction associated with that. So whether that be on the, the valuation side or whether that be on in particular with real estate, the income side. Okay. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good answer. I just wanted to pick your brain on that. Cause obviously the, like you said, the, the systemic part of the risk side component with regards to being part of the market. I mean, it's always going to be there regardless of yeah. which sector you're in. Right. Even if it's like you mentioned earlier, like physical assets, if say you buy like a, a gold mining company, well, the gold mining company has got that risk, but if you buy physical gold, well, that could get closer to what you would consider an alternative. Yeah, it's not going to. Gonna, it's not necessarily going to be impacted. Like it's it, the asset itself. I mean, gold's a little tough, but we're we're going down the right path of the fact that um, there are different drivers of current valuation, if you will, associated with each respective form of accessing the asset class. People probably hate me because like every answer I give is so is so, such a big caveat or an asterisk associated <laughs> with it. But I, I it is what it is. And that's the way that I think that's about a, it. It's all good. Um, <laughs> there's another space that, that I that, that comes up often, obviously, in the ETF space, because it was pretty much the story for a full year was the boom of cryptocurrency ETFs. And that often gets bucketed into alternatives. I know like some industry reports, basically, like if you looked at the alternative flows uh, in that category for ETFs, it was all crypto for a while. Um, is that something that you would consider uh, an alternative investment and kind of, I mean, I don't want to dive too deep into, I like, we're not trying to figure out what the value of Bitcoin sure. is here, but just kind of what high level comments on, on cryptocurrency and, and, uh, you know, is, is that an alt to you? Basically? Yes, I do think cryptocurrency is an alternative. Um, again, a number of different ways that folks can access it. And depending on what they're purchasing, maybe you could make the case one or the other. Like if you're buying a, an ETF that invests in like, publicly traded miners or publicly traded like crypto exchanges like the coinbases of yeah. the world like then i would not necessarily because again you're subjecting yourself more so to that systematic risk that comes along with investing in a long only form within individual yeah. equities but what if you're investing in um whether it's futures or physical or or anything that gives you exposure to that of the the kind of currency itself, yeah. um, then yes, I definitely consider that. And I think as we've seen, like, that's a little bit of an easier case for many people as well, because without um, needing to know the entire empirical history of cryptocurrency, I think most people realize that it behaves in a different way compared to that of um, traditional markets and or publicly traded markets. And so as a result of that, I think many people can make the case that it's an all. Okay. No, I, I like that. I think... Uh I think I, I kind of share that 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 perspective for sure. Um, definitely as, as, as close as you get to the actual currency itself, right? Because yeah. obviously, uh, with with miners or exchanges, I mean, you are definitely getting <laughs> some some market risk there. Um, one of the questions I've had, and I've actually this is something that's come up in conversations with uh, with advisors, you know, being out uh, on, on the road and, and getting to meet all of our great clients here at Fidelity over the past six months is. Uh, you know, kind of that the fixed income component is has been a big question mark, if you will, over the past 12, call it 12 to 18 months. And even say you could say the better part of two years uh, as central banks have gone on this rate hiking cycle. But, you know, bond yields are now fairly attractive. Um, is that something that hinders the demand for alts or helps the demand for alts in the sense that 
you know, there are a lot of strategies, I think, that came out over the past couple of years that were somewhat of a an offset or compens- uh, to compensate maybe for the lack in yield on the bond side. Yeah. How, how do you kind of see that relationship, if you will, evolving yeah. as, as yields are now at least much better than they were from a year and a half ago, right? For sure. Like that's a, it's a really prudent, but as well as difficult question. Um, I think that, but I can speak to it for sure. I think the points that you make are completely true. And most investors out there think to themselves, like on a risk return basis, based on where rates are right now, like, do I make the decision to be invested in traditional fixed income, whether that be corporates, whether that be sovereigns, whether that be a combination of the two, or do you go the direction of some of the more alternative stuff? And like, I mean, I think you can make a case for both in the portfolio over the longer term, but let's talk about the realities of what everybody wants to talk about, which is the shorter term, even though we can't <laughs> predict it, just because of what? the fact that we can. Um, so I think that if I if I kind of look at things, like if I look at liquid alternatives, for example, and alternative credit strategies, mm-hmm. which gen- generally tend to carry less um, exposure on a sensitivity basis to that of let's call it rates like i think i think some people think of it through the lens of all or none where they're saying themselves okay we're probably close to if not at peak rates from a hiking standpoint and so then at this point assuming that they go down however far they go down over time like i'm better better suited to be in like long nominal bonds as much as possible um, for both the purposes of the income as well as the potential capital appreciation that comes along with that. That's that's pretty straightforward. I think other people think of it as, hey, you know what? Yes, rates are high. Yes, regardless of which fund I invest in, there's the potential to clip a pretty significant coupon here. Um, but I'm of the mindset that, hey, you know what? I don't know how much the next, how the next 12 to 18 months is going to unfold. I'd rather have a portfolio where I still can generate pretty um, material income. Um, maybe I can, if the manager's strong, like take advantage of some of those opportunities for capital appreciation. But a product that provides me um, either a little less sensitivity to that of some of the other stuff that I own in a nor- nominal form within my portfolio, or just a product that has some additional levers to which they can protect against any dips that might occur over the short term, over that period. And I'm not gonna say like one of those mindsets is better than the other. It just depends on kind of picking your poison. If you think of the other side, if you think of like private markets and private credit and private debt, which is like really taken off as an asset class over the last number of years. I mean, it's tough to treat the things as one and the same because more often than not, um, like private debt and private credit funds um, the reason why they have the ability to offer a potentially a more attractive like income oriented return is for an, a number of different potential reasons like the loans themselves could be like less liquid so there's an illiquidity premium that's baked into that um, it also could be the fact that the loans that are being issued or um, the debt that's being issued um, is higher risk and so it's higher higher compensated so I mean, if I'm to make if, if I'm sitting in front of an investor who is like not very investment savvy and they're saying to themselves like, well, somebody's offered me a um, like rate rate exposure through some sort of like a like a development country sovereign product or individual security or whatever versus that of a 
like a higher risk private debt, then you got to be able to tell them the difference between an apple and an orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with either of them. It's just recognizing the realities. So I would say it depends on where you're your thoughts lie maybe over the next little while. And then thinking of it from more of a holistic standpoint in terms of portfolio compensation or portfolio composition um, and kind of harnessing the benefits of that diversification over time. Maybe it's more a question of looking at, okay, if I've got alternative fixed income or alternative credit, regardless of whether it's public or private, and then I've got the normal stuff, if you will, what does that look like? Do I need to shift that allocation a little bit more from one to the other because I've got too many eggs in one basket? That could be a question asked too. You know, it's good to have a mix in that basket, right? For sure. And I, th and I think that's the the takeaway um, that that you know people listening should should remember is that you know you don't have to go say I don't want to own bonds ever again, and I, or or I don't you don't want to own alts because my bonds. You know, it's, it's, I think a mix of 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 both definitely makes. A lot of sense uh, in most portfolios. But I agree that I'll end at this. I agree that the case for long only fixed income, like nominal bonds, if you will, um, at this point in time is, is way better than it was a year or two ago. So well, as an investor <laughs> myself, despite the fact that I wear an alternative cap more often than not, like I think that the risk reward is, is, is um, especially with a longer term outlook, like it, it looks pretty good. Breaking news, Fidelity partners with Brookfield. Ah, yes. <laughs> Last couple of days. You thought I was going to forget. Sure. Uh, we can talk about the elephant can, in the room. Can, can, can we talk about that a little bit? It seems like it's a great announcement for uh, for Fidelity. I mean, for for uh, you know, for a lot of people that are going to be listening, it might even impact their portfolio rather sooner than later. Um, sure. And uh, so just... Yeah, give us the give us the down low on on what's going on with Brookfield and and uh, what we're partnering from a product standpoint to bring to the Canadian market. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, yeah, so we've we've struck an agreement or we've uh, we've entered an agreement with Brookfield where we are going to be creating a newly formed portfolio of higher quality Canadian real estate assets, um, and we're thrilled about it. Um, both from an offering standpoint, but as well as um, the 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 entity that's actually going to be managing it. So Brookfield, um, I, I, I'm sure many people know the name, um, whether they know the pedigree and the footprint associated with that company. Like, I think the biggest thing for us in terms of finding uh, a manager for this particular portfolio, like we wanted something that in many ways embodied what we as a firm embody yeah. um, from from a number of different angles. And so we're we're very happy about that. And as you said, I think that what we've done initially is we have filed uh, amendments for a number of our different uh, private investment pools, um, which which certainly a number of investors out there own. Um, and this over time will likely become kind of close to 5% allocation um, to this, this particular portfolio of real estate assets. And then on top of that, as we speak, and nothing I can speak too, too much towards, we're, we're exploring other means as to which investors can access okay. uh, this product. And I think that there's a number of reasons as to why we're doing it. You know, like I think that over the long term, we believe that private real estate is something that can be very much accretive to 
not only investor return and potential income that comes along with that, but as well as the diversification qualities that it offers within someone's portfolio. And I think for us, like the huge benefit right now is the fact that yes, there, I mean, I call spade a spade, like there's a lot of questioning and worry about the kind of market we're in for private real estate in particular and how that may shape out over the short term. Um, but I think starting with this kind of uh, portfolio of dry powder, if you will, yeah. uh, gives us and more importantly, gives Brookfield the opportunity to uh, as opportunities come our way, whether it be from a valuation standpoint, whether it be from a property improvement standpoint, which is something huge about what they do and utilizing their operating model. Um, we have the, the potential to to help investors as it relates to um, as I said, both the diversification side of things, but as well as hopefully some return. That's awesome news. And I think uh, we're definitely going to keep our eyes open for that coming uh, coming fairly soon. So Rory, I just want to thank you very much for doing this. Fun as always. We'll be glad to have you back sometime next year. And I'm sure you guys will have launched another few products and you're going to have a bunch of new you know, trends and ideas to share with us. So, uh, but this Hopefully, has been great. Otherwise, I won't have anything to talk about. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Because we've already gone over 30 minutes and uh, it seems like it flew by and we could have kept on going. So uh, yeah, just thanks again. And, and thank you everybody for listening as always. Catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the ETF exchange powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again and see you next time.